If only life came with a laugh track. Or Lucy, if Lucy was your mother, I wonder how that would be. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, happy Mother's Day, everybody. Thanks for being here. I'm glad you're here. One of my wife's beautiful gifts to me and to, I think, the world is she loves to laugh. She just loves to. So I'll, I'll be in bed at night. I, I usually go to bed earlier than she does. She's a night person, which I don't understand. Uh, but I'll, I'll be going to sleep, or I'll be asleep already, and then she's watching television out in the other room, and I hear her laughing, like, like out loud, like through the house. It's like... <laughs> It's amazing, but it's a gift to be able to have someone that laughs like that in our lives. So I, I love her for that, among many other reasons. Uh, Mother's Day is interesting because Mother's Day comes with really great joys and really great sorrows. And there are people that go on both sides of that spectrum, and sometimes we ourselves go through both sides of that spectrum on the same day. And then it cycles around every year, and we go through it again. And if you're a mom, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of pressures that come with that. If you're a woman and you're not a mom, there's a lot of pressures that come with that sometimes. And sometimes I think it's like, I think, it, it, I think sometimes those pressures, and, and there's pressures on those of us who are not even women, right? I mean, so the, all of us can get on this boat if we want to, but uh, sometimes I think life feels like you're a grape in the grape vat, you know? Sometimes you're the foot, and sometimes you're the grape, Right, and, and it, sometimes it feels like people are dancing on your head and not in a happy way. So that's interesting. Uh, when I was in Israel uh, back in October, we went to Nazareth, which is a town that Jesus grew up in, and we went to a little farm there, which is sort of a reproduction of the ways they would have done agriculture back in the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and we saw an olive press. It's just a long beam, and it's got these boulders hanging down from it, and they put, they put all the olives underneath that, and then they lower the these rocks, these big stones, and they just lower it in. And it's not like someone's stomping on the olives. It's just this constant pressure. And it just weighs and weighs and weighs and weighs on the olives until all the oil is squeezed out. And sometimes our lives feel like being squeezed like a grape. And sometimes our lives feel like we're being squeezed like an olive. And then we have to respond to those things. We've got to figure out, how does this work in my own heart? How do I engage this in my own heart? And we're talking these days about being whole. And no olive that's underneath those stones is whole. No grape that's underneath those feet is whole. But we want to be whole, and God wants us to be whole. God has this design for us to live a whole life, fulfilling, rewarding, uh, filled up, that's what, if overflowing, that's what he wants for our lives, but it doesn't always go that way, or we have to learn to lean into what he has for us, and so we're talking about whole and this desire we have that all of us want to be whole, and sometimes when I think about the concept of what God wants for us and the idea of wholeness or the idea of shalom, which we'll talk about next weekend, I look at that and I go, well, what, what do the scriptures say about it? What does God say to us in his scriptures where you go, this is what he's talking about. This is what he wants for us in our lives. And sometimes when you think through the scriptures, and I don't know how long you've been following Jesus or seeking Jesus or how long you've been engaged with his scriptures, if at all, but I've been looking through the scriptures, reading the scriptures diligently uh, for, you know, since high school. And I notice that there are these certain scriptures that are more well-known than other scriptures. I could turn to certain passages of the Bible and I'd read it for you and you might scratch your head and go, I didn't know that was in there. 
But there are some places in the Bible where if I were to read it to you, you go, oh, I know that one. And even if you haven't been hanging around church your whole life, if you're newer to this, you probably still go, oh, that's familiar to me. And how do these passages of Scripture that get to be so familiar, how do they get to be so well-loved by us? One of those passages that's very familiar and very well-loved, we don't ever spend time talking about in church because we just know it so well. But one of those those passages is Psalm 23. You know this one? You may know it by its other name, the 23rd Psalm. Yeah, right? Why Why do we give that one a special name? We never say the 36th Psalm. We just go Psalm 36. You know, we don't go the 92nd Psalm. It's just... It's just Psalm 92, but when it comes to the 23rd one, we go, it's the 23rd Psalm. It's because it's got something in here that speaks to us and touches us really deeply in our soul. And we know it and we feel it and we end up loving it. And I think we do because now for 3,000 years, that Psalm has been giving comfort in hard times for a long time. And when we feel broken, the Psalm is beautiful to help us move toward wholeness. If you want to read it uh, with me this morning, you can turn into your Bible to Psalm 23, or the 23rd Psalm, where you can pull out your smartphone and get the YouVersion Bible app out and follow along with that. Or you can just listen. Here's what the writer, King David, says. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That was written by David. We know him later in his life as King David, but he wasn't always a king. And sometimes, I don't, I don't know if you ever think when you, when you hear that psalm or if you're reading through the scriptures and you get to that psalm, I don't know if you stop and go, what was going on in David's life when he wrote that psalm? Because sometimes we come to these places that are so comforting, we go, oh, David was such a spiritual giant, and he was so engaged with God, and his life was so full of joy. Or he was a king, and king, kings have everything. It's hard for us to think about people who have everything ever having any trouble. But I imagine when David wrote this song, that it wasn't the high point in his life. I imagine that when David wrote this song, he was under a pile. I imagine when David wrote this song, he either either felt like somebody was stomping on his life of grapes, or there were some stones pressing down on the olive of his soul. And you can't tell just by reading the psalm if he's writing it as a statement of reality or if he's, if he's writing it as a statement of faith in what reality could be. 
I don't know how it went for David, and I don't know how it might go for any of you who write, but I know I, I've kept a journal in my life since I was in high school. Not every day and, and, and not every month, but you know, sporadically over the, all these years. And what I've noticed when I look back on it is I typically write when I'm depressed. I typically write when I'm under stress. I typically write when things are not going all that great for me. Because when it's all going great for me, I don't have time to write because it's just too much fun and life is good. But it's when it gets hard, I go, I've got to write this down. I've got to think this through. And often my writing when I'm in pain becomes not a statement of just reality, but it becomes a statement of faith. I don't know if David wrote this song when he was just a young shepherd boy and all of his brothers had been sent off to battle and they're doing magnificent things in the name of Israel and in the name of the king. And David's left isolated in a field with a few little sheep. Or I don't know if he wrote this song after he'd helped King Saul solve his biggest problem who came in the person of of a man named Goliath. And after David served the king so valiantly and so gallantly, then the king started chasing him down because he was jealous of David's popularity. And so now David's hiding in a cave in the desert in En Gedi. And I don't know if that's where he wrote this song, being chased by the king of the nation. I don't know if he wrote this song late in his life when his son Absalom was rebelling against him, and not just the rebellion that comes in typical families like we would see these days where the, where the son or the daughter says, I want to be off on my own. I want to I separate myself from the family. I want to be my own person. And they don't know how to do it except for to rebel a little bit. It's so painful for everybody. But what happens when that rebellion goes public and now your son wants to become the king and to be the king, he's got to take you out. And maybe that's when David wrote this song. It wasn't all up and to the right for him when he wrote it. And listen to what he says about the value of knowing the shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Really? Is that a statement of reality or is that a statement of faith? He makes me lie down in green pastures. One of the the things to look at in your life to figure out how wholeness is developing in your life or maybe a lack of wholeness is developing in your life, one of the things that becomes a marker for you is your ability to rest. We live in a world that is constantly moving, constantly pushing, constantly driving. And some of us have no ability or very little ability to rest. David writes, The Lord, my shepherd, makes me lie down in green pastures. If you look at your life and you find an inability to rest, it might be a marker of the fact that wholeness isn't in your life yet. He leads me beside quiet waters. That's wholeness for an introvert, which I appreciate. And then this. He restores my soul. Those are four of my favorite words in the Bible. He restores my soul. Nobody is automatically whole. 
it's easy to look around in our lives and, and even at church, look down the row and look at people who just seem to have it all together. We ought to have a day at church where you go, this is not have it all together day. We ought to have a day where you just dress like your soul looks or your soul feels. Oh, you no one wants to come. It'll be empty. We like it. We're like, okay, cover it up. Make it look good because we're coming to church. Yeah, but every one of us needs our soul restored. Every one of us. Nobody is automatically whole. And nobody stays automatically whole. We need a shepherd. We need a shepherd who restores our soul. It's a, it's a, it's a word that's the same, it's the same Old Testament word, the same Hebrew word as the word to repent. It means God turns our soul around. So when your soul is going this direction and it's not up into the right, it's the opposite direction, then God turns our soul around. And the way it's constructed in this text is he turns it around again and again and again. I love the fact that the Bible says the mercies of God are new every morning. It's just a reminder of the fact that God restores my soul again and again and again. For one, because I need it. For two, because he's capable of it. He restores my soul. His goal is to make me whole, which is the ability to live in the dynamic of being well. We were talking at the beginning of this series about, about health and wholeness being this, this state of being completely well, like living in complete well-being, which is a good definition, except, except our health is never a state. It's never static. It's dynamic. It changes. That's why God restores my soul again and again and again. He wants to fill my cup again and again and again. And here's where I think David was when he wrote this song. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's where he was walking then. You ever been in the shadow? You ever been in the valley of the shadow of death? Sometimes it seems to me the shadow of death is almost worse than death. Like when you're in the waiting room and you're waiting for your loved one or you're in the waiting point of life and you're just waiting and you want them to get better but they're not getting better or you're waiting and now they're on hospice and you're waiting and you're living in the valley of the shadow of death. Valleys are interesting, not, not, valleys in our, not valleys in our state. I mean, we, li we live in the Sacramento Valley. It's this huge valley. It's a big, flat valley with mountains on both sides, but separated by miles. That's not how the valleys typically are in Israel. Some of them are, but most of them are valleys that are more like canyons, and they twist, and they wind, and they turn. And when you're in that kind of a valley, you can't see around corners very far. When you can't see around corners, you don't know what lurks around the next corner. You don't know what lies behind the next corner. And that's what our lives are like. You don't, you don't know what's around the corner. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. You don't know what's coming this afternoon. And it's not just a valley, but it's the valley of shadows. Literally, it's, literally it's what he says is, even though I walk through the valley of shadows, and shadows are interesting because shadows make it hard to see. 
Shadows make interesting portraits when you've got light and shadow and it creates contrast and that can be artful and it can be interesting and it can be creative. But when it's just shadow, it just makes it hard to see. And so now you've got a valley where you can't see around the corners and you've got shadows so you can't see people's faces and you can't understand the nature of a threat that comes. He goes, even when I walk through that valley with those shadows, which we walk in, We walk in them on Mother's Day. We walk in them on Father's Day. We walk in them every day or potentially every day. Even when I walk through the valley of shadows, what? What does he say? Even though I walk through the valley of shadows, I I fear no evil. I fear no evil. What a great gift that is. We live in a a world of fear. We live in a culture of fear. We live in a world of fear. We are surrounded by fear. In our political system these days, we're, we're running on fear. We see great tragedies happen. Great horrific things happen in our gathering places these days in mosques and synagogues and churches and schools. And every time one of those terrible things happens in one of those places, someone will say, it was a hate crime. And I'm sure most of those cases where they're describing that, it's a hate crime. But it was a fear crime first. It was a fear issue before it became a hate issue. And we fear the other. And we fear things that we think are evil. And here's David, and he says, even though I walk through the valley of shadows, where fear is rampant, I will fear no evil. Well, good. How did he get there? Here's where it changes. Here's where the psalm changes. It changes from third person. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. It's all third person. It's sort of out there about him, affectionate toward him, but it's about him. But at this point, he says, even though I walk through the valley of shadows, I will fear no evil because you are with me. And he moves from third person to second person, and that changes everything. It changes it from a statement to a prayer. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. And that changes me. It changes this. My cup overflows. Lord, because you're with me, because of these things you do for me, my cup overflows. I never, I never buy into that half glass kind of philosophy. You know half glass? I have to say this carefully in church because it can come out bad. Half glass? Like people, do they ever say to you, like, are you a glass half empty or are you a glass half full kind of person? Now, how many of you are like glass half empty? No one's going to play the game because I'm setting you up. Okay, you know I'm setting you up. Okay. How many of you are half glass full? Yeah. 
I'm none of that. Because look, if the Lord is with me, my glass is half nothing. A whole cup, a whole life is half nothing. My cup overflows. It overflows. Why don't you make that the theme song of your life? Like, why, why does it have to be half empty? Why does it even have to be half full? Who's sad? Like, I'm with David. My cup overflows. Is that a statement of reality or is that a statement of faith? I think it's a statement of faith. But if it's a statement of faith that is lived out over and over in the presence of God, didn't that make it a reality? He says, I will not be afraid because you are with me. The presence of God changes everything. Well, actually, it doesn't. Actually, it doesn't. Because God is, God's, with, God's everywhere. Isn't he? We have a theological word for it. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. So, the, I mean, he's, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's with you, yes? Yeah, but if you're not a follower of Jesus, isn't he also with you? Yeah, he's, he's with you. He's there. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. There's not a place on the planet where God is not, where Jesus is not. It's not the presence of God that necessarily changes things. It's faith in the presence of God that changes things. And here's David, and he goes, let me give you reality. My cup overflows. And that reality comes from my faith in the presence of God with me. I'm going, to last, I'm going to ask Alicia Wilson to come up here in a minute. We're going to talk about some practical applications of this. But let me just give you this one before she comes up. When I was a child, I memorized the 23rd Psalm. I don't even remember why. I think I probably got a sticker in Sunday school or something for, like, memorizing it. And then I forgot it because it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't even know what a shepherd was. You know, I, it, it, I forgot it. I learned it again as an adult because then it mattered to me. What if you were to take the 23rd Psalm and make it your statement of faith? What if, you, what if you memorized it? And you just recited that between you and God every day as you go through your life. What, what would change for you? And somebody would go, oh, I, I, can't, I can't memorize. I'm, I'm, I'm bad at that. Okay, let me give it to you in seven words. Learn this. He restores my soul. It's four words. Can you learn that one? We can learn it right now. He restores my soul. Say that. Look at that. You did it without me coaching you. He restores my soul. Here's three more words. My cup overflows. Say that. He restores my soul. My cup overflows. Let's do that. He, he restores my soul. My cup overflows. He restores my soul so that my cup overflows. Now, if you just learned those seven words from the 23rd Psalm and you repeated them as a, as a statement of faith in your life, every day when you got up in the morning, first thing, every night when you went to bed at night, last thing, and sometime through the day, what would change? Maybe your reality will begin to match your faith because the Lord, your shepherd, is with you. All right, I don't want to leave it at that. Alicia, come up. Why don't you guys welcome Alicia Wilson, please? I asked Alicia if she would come up and help walk this through as a mom 
and as a woman, and also as a, fo- a fellow follower of Jesus with me and with us, and, uh, and just talk through some of the practical stuff about this, right? So, Alicia, let's just talk about, let's talk about your life. Tell your story a little bit, just in terms of, like, the pressures and the stresses and the things that land on us. Yeah, I um, have struggled with depression and anxiety, and I think just being a mom stress every single day of my life. <laughs> but depression, anxiety, too, um, in two areas of my life. One was about five years ago, and the depression was brought on by a circumstance that happened to me. And it didn't last that long, maybe a a month or two. But then when Ryan and Ryan, my husband, people think Ryan Reed is my husband. He's not my husband. (laughs) No. I work with him, but my husband's name is Ryan also. (laughs) Um, When we first moved up here, uh, I soon after had our second son, Benson. And I struggled with depression postpartum mainly for about a year and a half um, after my baby. And so... It was pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's not uncommon for new moms. No, what's that. hard too as a new mom is you don't really notice that you're in it till you're kind of coming out of it. Um, that's what's hard um, because there's certain similarities that you have um, in postpartum that's similar to other parts of a woman's life <laughs> um, where part of it is like um, there's things in your mind where you can't get out of a negative experience, meaning you think only negative thoughts and you can't see the hopeful side of it. It's just a cycle and you can't get out of it. And so that's where I was. Along with, there were other circumstances with having the baby that just played into it too, so that it, everything was working against me during yeah. that time. Describe some other kinds of triggers that maybe you've experienced or that other people experience that bring on depression or anxiety or those things. Yeah, so it can be so many things, and I think people aren't aware of. People just think, oh, this person is clinically depressed, and it's just something that happened to them. No, um, it can be just biological, where it's a chemical thing that's happening in your brain that you honestly have no control over. Like, it has happened to you, and um, you don't know why, but it, but it is. And then there's hormonal um, things that happen that can also throw you in there. Um, it is the time of year sometimes. It is circumstances that have happened to your life. I always explain it as the first time I had my first bout of depression, it was something that happened that was one of my biggest fears in life happened. So you think, like, God's going to protect me and keep me safe from this thing. I know that for sure. And then it happens, and you're like, oh, he's not. And it spins you into this whirlwind. Yeah. There are also things outside of our lives that, um, that come in like that we invite in, like social media. I just saw an article this week that was talking about social media and how sometimes it leads to depression for us, which is an odd thing because I'm like, there's happy stuff on there. Yeah, but I think when you're in um, a state of depression, um, you're already seeing what's going wrong. So social media tends to be a highlight reel of what's happening. That plus what social media has done now is showing you who's hanging out and you're not invited. So, um, especially for teens, like you'll see that, that teens have started to have a lot of anxiety in this area because they're noticing, oh, I wasn't invited to this, or these people are hanging out, or this person's cooler than me, where before out of sight, out of mind, you weren't even aware, but now, oh, I'm going to make you aware of everything you're not a part of. And also the news, when you're in depression, it's not like you don't want to be aware of current events, but your mind has already thought of the worst happening. So watching the worst happening just 
amplifies it in your brain. Yeah, so you're, you're describing something that, I, that goes on in my own mind, and mm-hmm. so it's not just the external stuff, but it's the stories I tell myself. Yes. Like I'm, a, I'm, I'm introverted, so I live inside my head. I tell myself stories in my head mm-hmm. a lot. How does that affect us? Oh, in so, <laughs> so many ways. I do, like I've explained it before. It's um, something that where you can't, you can't get out of the negative thought. I gave this example last night where, you know, as a mom, you have fears and anxieties about your children. I think that's a natural. You can't get out of that. But I was to the point where um, my kids would be sleeping, and I'm looking at them and thinking of the worst things that could happen to them and sobbing over it and not getting out of that. It wasn't joy came in the morning. It was in the morning that fear was still there. And so it's debilitating. Like you can't, you don't want to leave the house to, for this one thing that could happen. Yeah, because something might happen. <laughs> it might happen. Yeah. And I want to say like what was hard about once I've, I got out of my depression, and let me make this clear about depression anxiety. Some people think, oh, you'll just struggle with it for a time and then it'll be done. Um, there are a lot of cases where it's chronic. Like, you struggle with it for your whole life. Like, if someone loses a limb, it's very apparent, like, they've lost that, and it's a bit harder in some areas than people with all their limbs. But it's something with, for the rest of their, their life that they live with. With depression, it's an unseen um, debilitation where it's like they may not struggle with it as strong some points, but it's something they will struggle with for the rest of their lives. So I like to take that stigma away from people where they think, oh, just pray about it and God will, mm. no, it's something you could live with for the rest of your life and you're trusting God to get you through each day. Yeah. Is it possible then to be whole in the midst of that when you go, this is going to be a chronic thing. How do I, how do I, and maybe we get to the high side of it and go, how do I find wholeness in the midst of that? You know, I, and I don't want to speak for everyone. So this is just my personal experience. But what I've learned to see in areas that I feel I have no control in, it's had me, it's made me more reliant on God and trusting him more. And so it sounds so weird, but it's saying it's given me this thing to continually trust him because I know I can't control it. Where a lot of our lives, we're not aware that we're trying to control everything in our lives. And in this, it's like, I've learned I can't, and I can only be dependent on God in it. Um, I think that's helpful. I think also um, therapy helps. Um, Therapy is so good. Basically, it's somebody who's been trained to listen and ask the right questions. (laughs) Honestly, they're perfect at it. And so sometimes we've shared with people, maybe our, I say my crazy inside, when those of us who've been sharing are dealing with this, you don't want people to think you're crazy. So you don't share it, which makes you feel crazier. Um, And so with the therapist, they've been trained to not make you feel crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's helpful. Medication, um, talking with people, honestly, journaling, scriptures helped. Yeah. Is there some way to know, like, so some depression is chronic, some is circumstantial, and it, it'll come and go or yeah. something, or it may just go yeah. after a while. Is there some way to know, like, oh, do I need to see a professional about this? How would, how would we decide that? Yeah, so there was, um, I would say there's a couple things. One, um, there was a point in my life where I called my husband one day, he was at work, and I said, I'm just letting you know, I'm not going to follow through on this, but I do, I want to kill myself today. <laughs> I want to do it. And so I was like, hmm, that's not a normal thought. (laughs) Um, And he was so calm with me and grace-filled. But I think that's the point. If you ever 
even just for a little bit have that thought in your mind, you need to see somebody. Because once you're, once you're getting to a point where you feel your life is not worthy of anybody or here, that's a lie straight from hell. And if you're not able to get control of it because of outside factors, maybe you can't. You need to see someone. If you are um, bed, like not having a hard time getting out of bed for a long time, like you just don't want to sp- do anything, that's another reason. And then um, I would say for like if it's been like a couple months and you cannot see the hope, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, that's one. And one more is those close to you, a spouse, a friend, a parent, if they're just like, hey, something's off. You're just not coming out of something. Those are the people who know you best, people you trust. Like, I know it's really shaky ground with husbands and wives. Spouses like, what are you calling me crazy? No, I love you. I just want you to be better. <laughs> um, those are ways. Yeah. So, we, so we live in a church, right? Not, a, I mean, you, if you think this is the church like building, I'm not saying that. But we, we, we're part of this group, this community called church. And it must matter in some way how we um, approach these things. So we're not doing this all by ourselves. No, no. And we've started a group called Living Grace. It's a group for depression and anxiety. It started last Monday. It's at 6.30 on Monday nights. And we had over 40 people come, um, which was amazing. But we have this group here. You can drop in at any point. It's not a group where it's like, oh, you have to start from the beginning and go through. Each week is based on just that week. And so I would say if you're someone who struggles with this, and some people think, well, do I need to be like clinically, clinically depressed? I've been told this. No. If you deal with fears and anxieties that you feel like, I just don't have the tools. I'm not getting past this. This is a great group to jump in and just have connection with others who are dealing with the same things and finding tools to kind of get through it. Yeah. There's all kinds of tools that we can use to help us walk through these things. I was, I was reading an article the other day that talked about uh, Zimbabwe. You know where Zimbabwe is? It's, it's in the southern part of Africa, about as far away from Folsom as you can be on the planet and in many ways. And uh, Zimbabwe has 16 million people, and they have 12 psychiatrists. You go, they're hopelessly unprepared to be able to help with some of the social and mental and emotional issues that go on in their culture. So they started an initiative called Friendship Benches, and they built benches, and they installed them all around the country of Zimbabwe, and then they invited grandmothers to come for training. And they've trained uh, hundreds now of grandmothers, and grandmothers, these, these trained grandmothers go out, and they will sit on the bench for a certain period of time. People know where the bench is. They know when grandma is going to be there, and they've trained the grandmothers to listen active listening like and asking questions that are probing into someone's life not in an intrusive way but to say let, let me pull out your story and the act of listening helps many of those people uh, go forward in in the process in their own life yeah some people say well i don't struggle with this so how can i help someone who i mm-hmm. know struggles with this the best thing you can do is initiate and listen you don't need answers someone who is in a depressed state of mind no answer will do like, because they're in the cycle of negativity in a way of like, I can only see the worst. I can't hear the best. And so if you are, if you initiate someone, just ask them questions and be there for them and then initiate again. Because say you initiated, you had that time and then you never talk to them again. They're like, see, I left the crazy out and they think I'm crazy. (laughs) 
It's keep initiating. Keep just asking and being there or just saying, hey, I just want you to know, if someone pops into your head one day and you're like, why are they, why did they pop in my head? Send a text, say, hey, I was just thinking and praying about you. You don't know what that does for someone. God is doing that for a reason. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Alicia, we've got to wrap this up. So is there anything else you want to give to us before we... Uh, Sorry, I got all excited. Yes, Brad, oh. I do. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now they think we staged that question. I know. We didn't at all. Yes. That's why I don't have a piece of paper printed out at all. <laughs> um, no, I started this Instagram because how I said social media is not a helpful tool sometimes. I don't think we people mean to... Like, don't be afraid to post happy things in your life. But I I started an Instagram called The Real Behind The Real. So R-E-A-L, real, like meaning the photo, because we say it's a highlight reel. So this one is people posting their pretty pictures, but saying what's really going on behind that. Like, look at our family smiling, but we were just punching each other right before this. (laughs) Um, Seriously, you you can go on. There's one of me and my family at Disneyland, and I give the real story. That was a reality right there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I just shared a post of one of my good friends from Southern California, um, and it's a picture of her, her and her husband at a wedding five years ago, just smiling. And she posted, this is us five years ago pretending to be okay. This is me days away from a very hard Mother's Day. As someone who had two miscarriages over that year, one of which just two months prior, this is a couple hurting. This is my husband, whose mom is with our Lord and Savior. He's, ama- he's amazingly strong, but Mother's Day is always a reminder of losing her. Celebrate this weekend. Celebrate yourselves, your wives, and your moms. And celebrate the women in your circles whose hearts are longing to hold a baby. Sorry. And remember that some have lost and need you to hold that space for them. Celebrate all the women and their husbands who are pretending to be okay this weekend. Send a text, grab their hand, give a card, and acknowledge them. And I love that she expresses the hurting part, but how we can love on that. Because sometimes, again, it's like, what do we do? Well, send them a text today. Just squeeze their hand, give them a card, or let them know, hey, I'm thinking about you today. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Alicia.